Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're quite excited today. We've got some great guests on. I'm going to pass on to Alex, who's going to tell us exactly who we've got. Okay, so first of all, we have the amazing Richard Van Emden. Um, if, even if you are a complete layman of World War I, if I say boy soldiers to you, or Britain's last Tommies, or Harry Patch, then you will know the writer I'm talking about. But he has produced so much more than that um, in terms of World War I literature. Um, he's written about just about every battle going. He's done books about other fronts. Um, and more, most recently, um, he's done Missing, The Need for Closure After the Great War, which um, we're going to get into a bit today. Richard, hello. Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you? So apparently, Richard, you've already told me you've been randomly kidnapping old people and adopting them since this whole crisis started. Is that right? Because you are the nicest man <laughs> in the world and you have done what a nice man would do. You've gone out and adopted all these frail old people. Uh, well, I've adopted two. We've got on our road, everyone's kind of adopted their neighbours and I've adopted a lady who, who lived, lived on our road for years and I, I have, I've just I've never spoken to but we ha- our paths happened to cross, and so I just said, okay, I'm going to adopt you. And I adopted a, an elderly gentleman on, a, on, a, on a, another road. So I'm just doing my little bit, but everybody else is doing their share too. So it's um, all, all in it, all in it together. I love that. <laughs> he is, Alina, I don't know if you've met Richard, but he is just quite frankly the nicest historian in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, speak to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us today, and I'm really excited about this, because we are talking a bit about missing and the need for closure after the Great War, we are thrilled to welcome Victoria Wallace, who's the Director General of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Uh, and we think your husband's had it, don't we? But he's okay now. We do. He's fine now. Thank you very much. Yes, it was a sort of couple of interesting weeks. um, But yes, he's good now. Brilliant. And also as well, you announced this week, and I'm very, very sorry to hear this, um, but very excited for you. You are going to be standing down in July, aren't you? I am. It's been the most amazing. Nearly six years. I can't believe how fast it's gone. Um, And it's been such a privilege and pleasure to lead this organisation and get out around the world. And I'll miss it horribly, but um, before all the coronavirus hit us, I applied, you know, I felt the organisation was in a good place and it was, you know, ready to be passed on to somebody else. So um, 
I'd, I'd gone for another job and then I got it. Um, so I've now got to go, which is a little upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's jump straight in. Um, Richard, there was yeah. a need for closure after the Great War. Um, it's quite a broad title. So tell us, what do you cover in this book when you talk about, um, we're obviously talking about bodies um, and the, the guys that had no known grave. Um, but also as well, I guess you are talking about people that had sort of graves that turned out to be temporary as well because they needed to be moved. But tell us what your thinking was when you went for this title and this book. Well, I mean, the, the idea originally was to write the story of one particular family whose uh, son uh, disappeared in May 1918, uh, the Mond family and the son Francis Mond, who was a, a pilot in the uh, Royal Flying Corps, but obviously by May, the RAF. And their need to discover his whereabouts, his body was uh, recovered from the battlefield, taken back for burial, and then simply disappeared. And they... His mother in particular, Angela, um, could not believe that she'd lost her son, uh, that his body could be recovered and then lost. And she just set out on this kind of one woman mission to find him. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary story. So when I came across that, that story at the uh, Commonwealth Wargraves um, archives, I just thought, wow, this is absolutely fantastic. But um, to be honest, I mean, there's always a risk with authors that they overwrite. And there's the temptation to sort of just do this story on its own would mean probably expanding it a little bit further than I would really want to go. So I thought, really, this is a story of sort of thirty to 40,000 words. So what else am I going to do? And I thought, well, why not look at the bigger picture? Why not say, okay, the, back, the, the, the backbone of this story is going to be um, Angela's search for her son, but let's look at the broader picture. Let's look at, you know, the formation of the Commonwealth War Growth, how the cemeteries came about. But also, um, in my research, to start looking at issues that I just don't think people think of, think about when they're talking about the cemeteries. You know, uh, how long do you look for the dead, for example? I mean, when do you decide you're not going to look for them anymore? And how are you going to sell that to the British populace? I was going to say, just so people know, so generally what would happen if your loved one went missing on the Western Front, um, you would receive a telegram saying that they were missing. Um, you'd get a little red envelope at your door saying that your loved one was missing. And um, there's different phrasing, but it, it, could, it could say, like I've seen officers' ones where it says missing um, does not, mean killed sort of just a reassurance um but then obviously these guys had walked into oblivion so you, you would as a family you would then wait months and months you would uh, probably do uh, if if the, i'm talking about mainly officers but um or or other you would try and find comrades you would try and find anyone that could help you you would perhaps write to red cross organizations um, and do your own chasing while you waited for news and then sort of out of the blue um and it really does vary doesn't it richard it could be six months at some points in the war or it could be 18 months you'll suddenly get a telegram from the war office that says we've heard nothing so we've now decided your relative is dead yeah well i mean for pension purposes it was six months that's mm. that's when you were told if your son, son was missing husband was missing um if six months had elapsed they for all for sort of legal purposes they were dead um i mean you're quite right i mean there was an extraordinary effort during the war to try and locate men who were missing uh the red cross did i forget now, hundreds of thousands of interviews with with soldiers who were who were wounded and in hospital who could tell you, well, um, you know, I, I think I saw Captain Smith, you know, I, I think I saw him at dead at the bottom of a trench, and that would be passed on to the families that they would know. But, of course, 
in a battle situation that even when these men were suffering from what we now call PTSD, you know, a lot of them just imagined what they saw. And I always remember one particular story um, of an officer who was killed on the 1st of July, or at least he was reported missing on the 1st of July. Red Cross interviewed six different people. The first one said, uh, yeah, absolutely. He was mortally wounded in the trench before we even went over the top. Another said, I saw him uh, lying in no man's land between the, between the, um, the front line trenches. Uh, another said, I saw him in the second line of German trenches. I mean, it just went on and on and on and on. It was perfect. All, all you could really make from it was that he was definitely dead. But in terms of eyewitness accounts, it was hopeless. And so for, for many families, they just really had no idea what had happened. And they went forever feeling that way. I mean, in Angela, Angela Mon's case, it was extraordinary that she had the time and the, and, the, and the sort of wherewithal to go and search for her husband. Most people had to simply just accept that he was dead. Uh, those who couldn't accept it left their back doors open, hoping that maybe one day their, their son or husband would walk in. But for most people, it was just um, it was the it was the beginning of 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 a of a life of mourning of tragedy, not knowing, and that was what one lady said to me, lost her brother, not knowing, not no, having absolute definite proof what had happened to a to a loved one, and that really tortured people. And I wanted that's what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to examine that issue, for, which which obviously engulfed so many families in the Great War. I mean, I, I did a chapter in the Eaton book I did about um, John Manners and uh, what that involved essentially in the end was um, one, not his family, but uh, he, he died in 1914 on, on the retreat um, in a skirmish uh, with the guards in uh, Villas Cotterets. So uh, Lady uh, Lord Salisbury's grandson, or I think it was Lord Salisbury, it was a prime minister's grandson, um, was killed. And his mother in the end ended up paying for mass graves to be exhumed um and and the answer wow. the outcome of this story was that by the time she had paid them to exhume this mass grave you have villas cotteret cemetery which is 98 men um most of whom have a headstone and a grave because this woman was so obsessed with trying to find her son so victoria how does commonwealth war graves come into it and and what was that so before uh, you have this this horrible situation of a battlefield littered with bodies, don't you, in 1915 and 16, and no structure because it's totally unprecedented for dealing with them. That's right. Um, And it was, I mean, largely we we attribute it to um, Fabian Ware, the Imperial War Graves Commission sort of founder who went across with a Red Cross unit and recognised that actually there was a huge job of work to be done just in recording where these graves were, these battlefield graves, particularly as, you know, by 1915, 1916, people were going backwards and forwards over the same bit of territory. And a lot of the original graves and grave markers were being destroyed. So some sort of mapping of it was the initial um, impetus. It was also... For the first time, I think it was Haig who recognised that um, you you had to make a a change to the way you dealt with war day. It was a much more democratic era. You were taking on mass numbers of people to this war, unlike the sort of South African wars or even the Crimea, Crimea, where perhaps you could get away because of the distance um, with not providing grace. But that great human question, which I think Richard deals with so brilliantly in his book, is where is my son buried? 
Um, and that's really powerful. So the IWGC was established to create some order out of this chaos. And so to take all the data that the Graves Registration Unit had amassed over the period um, in France and Belgium and try to then create cemeteries and lasting memorials to the missing, because of course it became very clear very early on that they weren't going to find graves for all of the people who were missing. Um, Richard, how did you then, because um, one thing you didn't want to do, you did not want to solely write um, a new history of how the Commonwealth War Graves was founded, did you? You wanted to do something very different with this book. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there, there are several books on the formation of the uh, Imperial War Graves Commission, and they're very good, and I just didn't want to tread over old ground. I mean, of course, you know, you have to set the scene to a certain extent, but um, having sat in the archives um, for, uh, I mean, many, many, many weeks um, with the wonderful archivist uh, Maria Schulz, who was there at the time, um, uh, she helped me an awful lot. But I just ploughed through the documents that were there, looking for angles, looking for things that would tell me a different story. Um, and, uh, and it was amazing. I mean... It, <laughs> Honestly, when you look, when you actually, it's, it's all about, we were talking about this yesterday, weren't we, Alec? We had a yeah. little call. It's putting in the legwork. Are you willing to put in the hours? And sometimes research is the most dull thing in the world. But you do, it's almost like fishing, isn't it? If you, do, you can sit yeah. there all day and right at the end of the day, you'll catch a, a pike or something. And it makes your day. And it was like that with the archives. I ploughed through endless documents. But what I was looking for were those little nuggets, things that would make me go, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. So, you know, as I, I, I sort of mentioned very briefly, um, you know, the whole question of how long you look for the, the dead for, um, you know, the rules and regulations of, mm. of, 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 of battlefield discovery, how you, how you bury the dead. But when do you make the decision that actually you can't look any longer? And I tweeted about six months ago that the uh, decision to, to basically stop the search for the dead, uh, the active search for the dead, uh, was taken when there were still 500 bodies a week being discovered. And people were absolutely shocked. Killing me. 500 bodies gave up then. But actually, given the numbers of men who were looking, given the logistics that was needed to keep these men in the field looking, you were actually, it was actually now down to about three quarters of a body per person per week. Well, that's financial commitment to keep those men looking for all that time when, when there are so many other issues going on at home. So I wanted to look at that. Um, I wanted to look at the whole issue of the repatriation of the dead, the, the pressure that's, that uh, some families put on the the government and, 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 and the military leaders to, to bring those bodies back that people wanted to bring back and the reasons why they really couldn't do that and the sensible reasons why they couldn't. Um, and then I wanted to look at other issues. You know, you sort of, you, you know, you think of this, what was it, December 1915, the, the government announced, the French government announced that they would give over landed perpetuity for the, for the dead of the empire. British Empire, and, the, uh, and what a gift that was. But how did the French farmers feel about that? How did the local people feel about that? 
Yeah, we were saying yesterday on the telephone that anyone who's ever been to Sare probably knows uh, how how you can uh, run into uh, there is a, there is a slightly grim, legendary uh, <laughs> old chap at Sare that's not very keen on the access. I mean, the, Victoria, is this something that's still yeah. uh, hard to manage today in terms of managing access to the sites and um, and dealing with any conflict that might arise because of that? Yeah, I mean, in most places, it's absolutely fine. But yes, I mean, you know, Sarah's an interesting challenge. We've got a couple of other places a bit like that around the commission. We've got other places where, you know, encroachment changes, development happen. I, I think it's really interesting that one of the things I love about Richard's book is that it answers an awful lot of questions which arise still today. Um, there's a big new project to build a canal from Bronze uh, Cambrai. Now that's going to be an amazing piece of work, but it's going to be quite challenging in terms of the number of bodies that may be exhumed in that process. So actually, while I was reading Richard's book, I was thinking, blimey, now hang on, is that by WGC's responsibility or is that the member government? And I'm thinking, blimey, we're going right back to 1922-23 here to try and work out actually who should be doing what in that scenario. And I also love the fact of the way Richard took the book, um, because it's not just about closure for the families themselves. It, you know, for a lot of those gardeners, the guys who were left behind looking after the IWGC cemeteries, it was about closure for them as well, and they were never able to move on. And that was something which really struck me. People think of the commission as this perfect you know, bringing order to chaos organisation. Um, and you read Richard's book and you realise, one, that un what's under the ground may not be as perfect as perhaps people expect. And we do still get regularly um, questions about misattribution of graves. And, you know, that's really difficult because when, you know, you read the story and you see what was happening at the time all over the place with you know, potentially people being laid at right angles to the way that you would expect in a cemetery. Um, in exhumation and things like that, really difficult questions still today. I mean, I, Richard, in case you hadn't noticed, Victoria absolutely loves this book that you've written. She thinks <laughs> it should be mandatory reading for everybody. Um, but it's true. It does yeah, cover, um, yeah, <laughs> it does cover um, many, many questions. And I, I was um, doing a, I was actually guiding some middle-aged men around a cemetery in Normandy um, and ended up with a trail of school children from a bus following me because we were teaching them how to read a cemetery. Things like if the headstones are all touching up against each other or if there are multiple names, why that is, why if you see six artillery men from one unit on one day, then you can sadly assume what might have happened there. Um, so, I mean, it is when you scratch the surface, and, and that's one thing I love about your book, Richard, is that we look at these lovely, perfect, beautifully cared for cemeteries now, um, but the story of how we got those is is paramount, as is the work that Commonwealth Wargraves continues to do to keep them like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's it, 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 it's it's a book in itself just on the formation of the cemeteries. But um, um, yeah, I mean, when you, you just it's just the issue, it's just the things that make you scratch your head and, and and appreciate actually what what went on a hundred years ago now. And as I was saying about the French farmers and 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 you know, we just assume they were all 
very happy to have seven small cemeteries all dotted around their commune. Well, they weren't. You know, the idea was actually you would, act, in the end, they, they, the French wanted one, basically one cemetery per commune, not more than that. Um, and you can see why. You get a cemetery in the middle of a field, um, a farmer whose field that is has now got to plough around that cemetery. And then not only that, but he then comes across the umbilical cord from the, you know, of a pathway from the, from the main road to the cemetery. And all of a sudden that makes life a lot more a lot more interesting for him a lot more difficult and you can see that actually it's it, it's such a complicated to get everybody on board to get everybody happy is a really really huge monumental task mm-hmm. let alone the actual you know, the acting up of the cemeteries itself the look of the look of the cemeteries the the the, the, the grass the, the beautiful flowers the gravestones you know it's it, it's all the backdrop to that that is so so complicated and, and you have to get everybody on board to make that successful and, and they did that i mean it's the most incredible incredible process it is but that we're talking about perhaps france and belgium we're talking about the countries where uh, that's the, the the biggest worry that commonwealth war graves have to face but then you've got um cemeteries in conflict zones you've yeah. got i mean victoria uh, tell mm-hmm. us about iraq well i mean iraq is one of those really sad places that has been pretty much unmaintainable for get decades now not just because of the iran iraq war plus then the um the gulf war and then the, the second gulf war um you know but way before that there were real challenges and in fact you know the basma memorial was never properly completed with all of the correct names on it because the british had to leave mesopotamia because it was just too dangerous to stay there so it's always been really challenging and we've bit by bit in the past few years, whenever there's been a window, been able to go back in. And we've done a couple of cemeteries. We've done Kurt and Habanaya now. Um, but in you know, Basra, the memorial, of course, is no longer where it originally was. It was moved by Saddam Hussein out into the desert onto land we don't own, um, which is a bit challenging. Um, and we were slightly taken aback recently to be asked by the... Um, uh, Ministry of Antiquities when we were going to move it back um, <laughs> and it was sort of almost well hang on you know me and whose army um, Saddam had rather more resources than I did um, and there are other you know there are other places which we really can't reach at the moment Mosul for example is completely destroyed there's almost nothing left you can just see the stub of the um, of the cross of sacrifice there but it was an ISIL um, bomb making dump now now, actually, if we're able to get back in there, we will probably eventually be able to restore it all. But that's a really interesting question for the future as to whether you restore it like for like, back to exactly how it looked um, when the British left in the 1920s, or whether you actually say, hang on, you know, actually there are already, you know, names of Indians, 30,000 Indians who weren't named on the Basra Memorial, how are we going to honour them? Are we going to include them on some new memorial? Are we going to change the way the place looks? Are we going to make it more of an amenity? Because these places are right in city centres. And so, you know, inevitably, there's pressure from populations who need open space. So would it make more sense to make some sort of memorial gardens? There are all sorts of questions which the Commission are going to have to face when we get to a point we can get back into those places but actually the cemeteries are really quite resilient it's amazing recently to see pictures of Aleppo cemetery which we weren't able to access 
um, for four or five years. And when we first saw pictures, we thought, you know, it doesn't look that bad. But a contractor went in recently and, well, you know, yeah, the grass isn't great. Um, but all we've really needed to do is replace a handrail. Isn't that remarkable? That is remarkable. Um, it is absolutely remarkable. Um, and also just the diversity of the challenges that Commonwealth Wargraves face is incredible. Let's, let's go back a bit. Um, Richard, I want to talk to you about um, the logistics of how at the end of a war, when you have countries literally strewn with unnamed dead, you go about trying to move towards these beautiful cemeteries with as many men identified as possible. I mean, this is work that it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly emotional and scarring for the men that carried it out, isn't it? Well, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, what, what were the rules that these men were going to work by? You know, you, you, you get to the 11th of November and very quickly afterwards, within about a month, the, 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 I think it's the 68 Labour Company has put on the job of, of searching for the dead and they're up in the Eats, Eats salient and they sort of map off the area, they flag off you know, to the, the ground in, into squares and they start searching. But there are no really proper constituted rules by which they're going to, to, to look. Um, and they really go sort of make it up as they go along to a certain extent. And of course, that's where you get the issues of misidentification. That's where you get one body lying across three graves when the, when the, when it's, it, when a grave is exhumed to discover exactly what's gone on. And they, they find, I mean, for example, at Hooch, there was all sorts of issues with with what they thought was slippage, where bodies had been had, had been moved through the ground by lateral flows of water, through because the, the ground was so wrecked. You know that 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 the process by which these men had been buried had not been properly supervised. I mean, it was just, you know, and then you're dealing with men who were, who, who were so distraught by the war they'd been through, by the fighting they, they, they'd seen, by the, 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 the killing they'd undertaken. And now here they are picking up bits of bodies, you know, not, not you know, the whole bodies that people like to assume is in great, you know, bits of skull, bits of arms, you know, there was just revolting states of decomposition that they came across. And is it any one? I mean, it's a, it's a mirror they managed to create the cemeteries that they did because the yeah. pressure on them, to, you know, the desire to get back to their families, to get back to some sort of normality. And here they are, rooting around for, long, for, the, for, for their friends, their comrades, in the most appalling states, as I say, of decomposition. It's just, it's just, it, it, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary story, and one I feel great sympathy for. And, and one of the things I look at in the, in the book is I, I, I say, look, these guys, a lot of these guys became alcoholics. There was a lot of trouble. There was a lot of, you know, there was a, a certain amount of fighting. You know, these men are living there often without their families, without their loved ones. Uh, they are barren in a way their, their own emotions are so numbed and, and there are some photographs one particular photograph of a of a group of men burying the dead and you can see the the cameraman's gone there he's taken a photograph and they're not smiling not one of them smiling they all look grim angry sullen and they're just looking at the camera and that tells you so much of, of, about the job they were undertaking 
I mean, and their and skill as well was incredible. Um, you're talking about um, being able to identify for the purpose of being able to say that an unknown body was in one regiment and not another or one battalion and not another. Being able to differentiate between shades mm. of khaki on the uniform. Isn't mm. that right, Victoria? Absolutely. And it always, I always feel very sad now when we get an inquiry from somebody or, you know, uh, an armchair researcher who's been sitting on his computer and he's absolutely convinced he's managed to make an identification um, that somebody at the time couldn't. Now, we're incredibly lucky that now we have so many resources which do enable us to be able to whittle down where people were at the time. But equally, we shouldn't disrespect the extraordinary pains that the men at the time went to, generally, to try to ensure that they were making a correct identification. We had one recently, for example, where somebody was adamant that that person must be so-and-so because he was found with a water canteen with that name on it. Now, yeah, but actually, as Richard noted in his book, people shared kit. Um, kit was passed on to somebody who, you know, after somebody else had died. And so, yes, it probably would have been in the same sector. So you can't make a direct link quite often between artefact and people um, if the guys at the time didn't make that link. Because, as you say, Alex, they did have a lot of skill in being able to do this. And I think, you know, it is absolutely remarkable that so many graves actually were identified and not remotely surprising that many will never be. So um, I covered a bit in the George V book because the royal family got involved with this drive to um, produce some commemoration um, for the missing, the people that didn't yeah. have graves or the people that whose names probably attributed to somebody that we cannot identify. Richard, do you cover the, how the genesis of those memorials comes about? That in itself is a fascinating story because um, um, we're so, it's, you know, research now is so easy. You know, we can just cross-reference things at a, a drop of a hat. But of course, everything was going to the paper card index back then that they had to cross-reference absolutely everything, check everything, recheck everything, look through endless, endless paperwork to, to verify um, who should go on to which memorial. So, for example... Uh, at, uh, at, uh, at, uh, um, at the Menning Gate, there are a lot of uh, Suffolk Regiment soldiers who should never have been there because what happened was that they were killed in 1914, uh, but they were, they were reported missing at the time. And the date of death was a finally established. Um, uh, the, 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 they were told, that the families were told that their loved one had died after, you know, that it's officially sort of, yes, six months have passed, your, your husband is now officially dead. And that then became the date by which they had died. So, in fact, instead of it being, you know, September, October 1914, it suddenly became May 1915. And therefore, they ended up at Eat on the Eat Memorial when they should have been elsewhere. So there were all sorts of errors and, again, um, issues with getting the right names on the right memorials. But again, it was, it was a fantastic you know, job, what they did. It was you know, to, to, to produce the memorials they have was an extraordinary feat of work and uh, and again all I'm doing all I'm the books that I do is just try to say okay we know how great it is but where are the issues where are the problems mm. just to make people think that's how in, in 
such an enormous task it was. And you almost get a sense of how good they were by, by some of the errors that they made. So I look at the kind of dark side of things in a sense to kind of illuminate actually just how complicated, how elongated a particular process was. It's incredibly helpful because without that, um, people do give a sort of almost lionising view of the whole commission and the way it operated. And there was for a while this sense of sort of impunity about it. And actually, I think it's really healthy that now humans are able to look and say, hey, you know, people did make mistakes. They were only human. It was astonishing what they achieved. But you actually understand more about it and more about the complexity of it by looking at those. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mistakes. I mean, there is a, there's a guy on the, and he is um, Suffolk. He's one of the Cambridge University guys um, from the 1st of July, 1914. Uh, 16 sorry uh, on the Teatvale Memorial um, and I can honestly can't tell you that boy might have died any day between the 1st of July and the 4th of July um, because you don't know the simple horrible fact of it is you don't know how long he lay dying for um, and when it happened and how long how long it took for him to expire but as far as I'm concerned I think as long as we can say um as a country that we've done our absolute level best to commemorate that boy in the best way we can. I actually don't think it matters if he perhaps didn't die until dawn on the 2nd of July. Um, that, that's the way I look at it. I'm sure that's right. I think there's a, there is yeah. an academic interest sometimes which goes way beyond what his mother would actually have wanted to know. You know, what mattered to his mum was not whether he, you know, he lay there dying for two days, but actually that he'd been killed going over the top in those those awful first days of the battle. And I think that's the duty that the commission has, is to make sure those people are never forgotten, that where we have their remains, they are respected and honoured um, in perpetuity forever. Um, and there's no... And we never just turn it into an academic book of numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I think as think as well. You know, this idea of perfection, which we which we seek nowadays. You know, that everything has to be absolutely right. Well, I mean, of course, when I, when I did Boy Soldiers, one of the things I, I noticed was was this idea of rounding up. So the families would be asked, you know, how old was X or Y, and they would go, well, he was born in eighteen ninety nine. He died in nineteen sixteen. No, he was seventeen. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. 
he could still have been 16, as I've found in, in, in several cases. So this idea that we have now, everything has to be absolutely perfect. Well, you know, that's in a sense a kind of modern concept, really. You know, it, it's, people didn't react in, the, in the same way 100 years ago. And you have to put yourself into their mindset at the time. And, um, and it was about paying respect as opposed to getting absolutely every, you know, T crossed and I dotted. Absolutely. Um, Richard, it's not, do you know, sorry, do either of you know the stats on Gallipoli? It's a horrific stat, isn't it? How many of the bodies are unknown on Gallipoli and how many people that died in the campaign um, are actually just commemorated on the Hellas Memorial? Well, I can't remember offhand. Um, Over to you, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. Almost none of the graves in Gallipoli are marked with the true name um, because almost all of the cemeteries in Gallipoli were mass graves. And of course, we didn't get in there until 1923 to be able to really sort it out properly. So I think it, you know, any of the graves, even when they're individually marked, the assumption must probably be that those, those people are buried somewhere on that plot. But I can't remember what the direct proportion is. Um, I can work it out and come back to you, Alex, if you want. I know, I do, I know it's high. That's, <laughs> that's all I was trying to say. Yeah. Alina, there's similar on the uh, Eastern Front, isn't there, in terms of this isn't just a Western Front or a British thing, not being able to identify your dead. Yeah, so I've actually, my great uncle, great uncle, great grandfather, his both of his uh, brothers actually uh, died on the Eastern Front. And their graves are empty. I mean, they've got they've got graves out in uh, in Tarnow in Poland, and there's there's nobody there. We have no idea where they are. I mean, it'd be great to be able to identify them, and and I highly highly believe, especially working in the Second World War, that everybody deserves a grave. Everybody deserves a name. And unfortunately, we find the same problem across the board that these people aren't being named, and and it kind of it is a little bit heartbreaking. It is. Um... And like I say, very much not just a British issue um, and a Commonwealth issue. Um, Richard, you've already mentioned the gardeners. Um, Tell people what you meant by that in terms of, so a lot of guys who served on the Western Front ended up staying after the war, didn't they? And becoming part of the new um, Imperial War Graves Commission. Yes, they did. I mean, some, some of the men felt sort of wedded to the Western Front for the rest of their lives. Um, I seem to remember a programme when I got interested in the Great War in in the 1980s. And I remember a programme featuring a Commonwealth War Graves gardener who'd been there that entire time. He'd, he'd served there as a soldier and remained there. And he was talking to school children about those early days. And he must have been in his 90s then. And he'd remained on the Western Front for all that time. So, um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the men, I mean, you know, aware of the sort of job situation back in the United Kingdom anyway, um, uh, you know, they liked the outdoors. They liked uh, um, uh, the life they'd they'd, uh, they'd had, and, and they wanted to remain overseas. They were quite happy. Maybe they, you know, they weren't married. They were st- still single men. They picked up with local girls. They married them. You know, they were more than happy to stay on and uh, and garden. You know, less happy maybe to to, to dig up uh, to continue digging up their their, their comrades, but. Um, the, the detail, one of the things that really fascinated me was the absolute attention to detail in, 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 in the way that they um, 
develop the cemeteries, uh, the, the flowers they used, which uh, reflected the, the nations that these men came from, uh, the, the challenges they faced in gardening, say, in the sand dunes up near Newport, mm. which presented all sorts of issues with trying to, to develop the cemeteries there. The, just the kind of care and attention and the devotion to duty of these men who, as I say, they mentally never and physically never, ever left the Western Front. It's a fantastic story. And one of the things actually when, when Victoria was talking about Iraq earlier and about the, the cemeteries out there, you know, one of the things that really that just struck me when I was listening to that was the fact that these gardeners, they weren't paid very much. But the pressure, even in the 1920s, in the early 1920s, to make cuts, to try and sort of, um, you know, maybe you know, instead of using grass, why don't we use gravel? Therefore, we, you know, we won't have to cut the grass every, every sort of few weeks. Do, do they really need lawnmowers as they side the grass? You know, all these kind of attempts to to reduce the costs isn't something that we now face today or face in the 1970s, but was something that was faced in the 1920s too. So I was really struck by the, the parallels there between today and actually with the COVID lockdown. Um, you know, we've got a lot of places at the moment where our staff can't get back into work. And the thought of what might have happened if the commission had gone to the scything approach that was, you know, proposed by... Um, the treasury at one point so that rather than having static gardeners or gardeners traveling around and mowing and tending the lawns carefully you know when Q actually looked at it I love that bit in your book that you know actually it's harder to keep a cemetery after you've let it go than it is if you just go and do a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and you lose that amazing personal touch. Yeah I mean this idea that you could just let nature take its course and you go into the cemeteries every uh, six months inside the grass was incredible they were just the queue the queue gar- the, the queue was uh, was asked to sort of write a comparative report about keeping the cemeteries as they were or, or or letting them go and they said look you'll get water ingress into the stones you'll get weeds growing up against their headstones water will get into them, the stones will crack you'll end up with with a, with a bill far greater than if you actually just as you say keep maintaining them a little bit at a time um, I mean, it was extraordinary, this idea that you could, uh, well, let's just, you know, cover the grass and get rid of the grass, cover it with copper slag or iron ore slag um, to cut costs was a, a, an amazing proposal and one which I was completely unaware of until I, until I wrote the book. And um, it's just a great testament to the, to the uh, Bill Walgrove's commission and, Q, and to Q itself that they resisted all attempts of the Treasury to really cut uh, cut those costs then we would have been, it would have been a very different western front had they had had the treasury had their way in 1924 one thing that strikes me um when you go to cemeteries today is when you meet the gardeners now because obviously now they're not british and they're not expats um they're local people and the pride that they show and and it, it's the irony is not lost on me when you go to uh gallipoli and you meet two turkish guys looking after British war graves and Australian war graves, um, that they were our enemy. And now actually they have this massive pride in looking after and caring for these guys that died in battle. Um, we went to, I went to 
Cairo New Protestant Cemetery because there were a load of Etonians um, there from uh, a big skirmish in the desert in 1916. And uh, there was a chap cutting the grass and he would not leave our side until he had looked at the references and guided us to each and every headstone so we could pay our respects. Um, and just, just this little Egyptian grass cutter. He wasn't a, a, a PR rep for Commonwealth War Graves. Um, Victoria, that's one thing that really strikes me is sort of the economy that it's created for the local people that do still have to live with war like this on a daily basis. I think that's, that's really nice, isn't it? That, you know, what was needed at the beginning, I'm sure, was people who had gone through the same experience and so it was comrades looking after comrades and we still maintain that to a degree through our governance you know we always have three senior senior military men on the commission itself so that you know there is a strong sense of that and we recruit still um in a, into management cadre of people who are ex-services so that that empathy is there but you're absolutely right the pride and the the love that comes from local people. Um, anyone who's been to Gaza and have met our team there, you know, they are blown away by the care that they have and the respect they have for individuals. I was in Italy two years ago with the commissioners on one of their tours when they go out and look and see the work on the ground. And we were in one of the cemeteries at Anzio. And there's a lovely guy there who's worked for us for 32 years, who was just coming up to retirement. And we said to him, you know, has he, did he have a, a favourite story or whatever? And he went over and found the grave of a 17-year-old. He said, you know, I just love him and I always say hello to him when I come into the cemetery. Um, Glyn Prosser, uh, then historian, had done some research for us and managed to get a photograph of, um, of him. And we gave it um, to this lovely gardener who had made this lad his own for so many years. And it was... Oh, I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house because there was just everybody there, former enemies now, you know, in, united in this extraordinary sense of um, common, common loss. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It just it really does have for me a family feel about it. The Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And I really hope that's something that isn't lost after you leave. Oh, I think it was there before me, Alex. It'll Excellent. Certainly- <laughs> <laughs> um- Richard, how did you get into World War One? Because we've launched an oral history um, initiative this weekend. Uh, the uh, indomitable, insane Peter Hart gave us uh, a talk on oral history and how to use it without looking silly in his own unique way um, by looking silly. And um, you've done very similar in that not Obviously, you're not as old as he is for a start. Um, but you spent, because <laughs> he's 39 years at IWM, but you wow. have interviewed just untold veterans of the Great War, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the end, I interviewed uh, 270 or, or just over 270 um, uh, soldiers of the Great War, you know, many served in the Navy and the uh, Royal Flying Corps as well as probably another dozen or so nurses who served overseas as well. Um, it all started back in 1984. It was one of those kind of ridiculous things. My mother said, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, I've no idea, but I know nothing about the Great War. Can you get me a book? And she bought me um, Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves. And I remember just being hooked. I just read it. And I, I, went, I went straight down. I lived in Reading, grew up in Reading. And I went straight down to the um, Chelsea Pensioners. 
learnt the medal, you know, the, the, the medal ribbons and walked around until I spotted a man with the medal ribbons of the Great War. And I just said, do you mind if I have a chat? And, uh, and we sat down and we just had spent, sort of, I can't remember, it wasn't that long. Uh, he would have certainly been aware of my utter ignorance. And, uh, <laughs> and as, once I'd spoken to him, I just thought, I need to meet these guys. I want to meet the veterans of the Great War. And in fact, I was just doing like lots of people, I've been doing a bit of a clear out. And I came across this, I don't know if I can show this. It's a newspaper, it's a photocopy of a newspaper cutting. Yeah. And it was um, in the, it was in a Reading newspaper, it was in the Reading, at the time, I was in about 1986, did a feature on, on veterans. And I thought, I wonder if they've covered any Great War veterans. So I went down to the local um, library and I asked them to get me um, some back, back copies of this newspaper. And they misunderstood what I said and gave me this, this little cutting I've just shown you there, which is about the closure of the old Contemptibles Association. Now, I was absolutely fascinated with the first shot of the First World War. You know, who was it? Fourth Dragoon Guards. My goodness. You know, 60 men involved. Wow. You know, what an incredible story. And they'd actually cut this newspaper cutting they bought me was from 1977, the closure of the old Contemptibles Association. And it turned out that uh, the president of the local association was one Ben Clouting, who uh, was age 16 and who took part in the first shot of the Great War, was one of those 60 men with the, with the 4th Dragoon Guards. And, and I, and he incredibly, lived a mile from my house. The world's last survivor lived a mile from my house. And so I used to go and interview him every Sunday listening to his stories of the retreat from Mons. And uh, I mean, he went all the way through right through the Army of Occupation. And that sowed my interest. That just that from that moment onwards, I thought I have to go. I set myself a target of 250 veterans. I said I must interview them. And I so I travelled all around the country once I got their names, and I would get their photographs, and I'd get their autographs, and I would take my little cassette recorder and record them. And it was always just a hobby. It was never meant to turn into a job or, or anything like that. But it's just turned into a sort of 30-year profession for me now. I can't imagine what else I could possibly have done. Um, and it's just, it's just been wonderful. But that's how it started. It was this sheer chance, sheer luck that I happened to meet a couple of veterans and that just so perceived for me. Amazing. I, just, I love your determination. Every Sunday. I bet he loved it, though. He did, because I remember one time not turning up on a Sunday. And the next week I saw him, he sort of cold-shouldered me a little bit. He was so annoyed that the previous Sunday I hadn't turned up. So, and then, you know, in 1990, I worked with him on the old Contentable's final pilgrimage. And we went to the place where he'd, he'd last been in 1939, just before the outbreak of the Second World War, when they opened the memorial. You know, we all know that memorial on the, um, uh, just outside of the uh, of, of Shape headquarters on the, uh, the road up towards Brussels, where the memorial to the first shot took place. And he said, well, this is actually where it took place. It took place a couple of miles up the road. And so we got on the curb up there, stood on the site and it's exactly as it was in 1914 with Ben Clouting talking about that first shot and where he took his horses behind this red brick wall the red brick wall is still there and it's magical magical I just I can't tell you how much I miss these guys you know having that had that opportunity to go and spend time with them you know in their homes and in his case actually on the western front with some, something I'll take to the grave with me it's just superb but my son my son is called Ben because on Ben's, when I when Ben Clouting was dying in 1990, I whispered in his ear, I said, if I ever have a son, I'm going to call him Ben. My son is called Ben. That's how much it meant to me. Oh, that is that is beautiful. 
I know, do you know one thing about it, Richard is that, that you have had a, a rare amount of uh, book sales for a World War One historian, um, largely in fact uh, due to the fact that Harry Patch was a, a publicity machine. Um, but it's been well earned. But still, as well, your absolute passion um, that you never actually went at it because you wanted to be the best-selling World War One author out there. You just went at it because you you think these guys erode it, and because you're so passionate about the. Well, when I was at university, you know, everyone else was getting legless, you know, in the students' union, and I'd be out knocking on old people's homes, going, have you got any... Well, what used to happen, I used to go to the old people's homes, and I'd say, have you got anybody who served in the Great War? And, and whoever I was standing at the door with would just go, no, we've got nobody like that at all. And then I twigged that if I said, have you got any man aged over 90, they'd usually go, oh, yeah, we've got a couple of those. And the, invariably, they were Great War veterans, so... It was. It was just a hobby. It was just so much fun. And Harry Patch, of course, was, was again, that was just sheer chance I, I, I discovered him uh, just after his 100th birthday. And um, I have to say, I mean, he, he, the book just went ballistic. And it's still, and I keep a track of my book sale, and it's still, I, I'm slightly afraid to say, 51% of all my book sales over the years have been that single book, of The Last Fighting Tommy. Still just over 50%. He was incredible. That's how many he sold legions. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, you must have by now in your six years met many, many veterans, but World War Two. World War Two, certainly. Um, one of my favourite um, uh, veterans, I mean, inevitably Normandy last year was remarkable and just so many extraordinary stories and such humility um, and just such nice blokes. And my mum actually lived next door to a really splendid bloke called Colin, who's bomber command. Um, and, you know, just wanders around and tells you the story whenever you, whenever you like, it's brilliant. Um, but I have a, a friend called Jim who comes along to the Air Force Memorial um, every Air, Air Force day up at um, Runnymede. And he tells the most extraordinary stories. He was the tail gunner in a Lancaster. Um, he generally joined up because he was fed up with the other boys getting the girls and he was only 17 but he lied about his age and he used to talk about going out on sorties um, and then you know taking a spill coming down he'd had to bail out three times and every time would still have to go out the next morning and when I'm talking I've got teenagers whenever I'm asked to go and talk at a school and I talk about stress and what stress actually means and tried to get a bit of perspective into people's lives today. Because if it's at 17, you can bail out of Lancaster having been under fire um, and then get up the next morning and get back into one of those aeroplanes being so exposed. You can probably cope with your GCSEs. Yeah, my great uncle was 20 when he was a tail gunner uh, and middle turret gunner as well. So I get exactly where you're coming from. Um, Richard, you've gone back to one of your big passions, if you were, like subjects, um, is Boy Soldiers. That was one of your early books. And you've been digging up more new stuff, haven't you? Yes, I can't quite leave it alone. Um, I'm going to do one final update of the book. I want to include uh, Sidney Lewis, of course, who's uh, now recognised as the youngest soldier of the, of the British Army on the Western Front, or any front for that matter. Um, he was 12 when he enlisted, 13, and probably about two months when he went to the Somme. Um, and the weird thing was, actually, when I updated the book in 2012, 
Um, the one thing we didn't know was who was this S. Lewis, because that's all we knew about him at that time. His newspaper cutting from 1916, Private S. Lewis, who'd served with the East um, Surrey Regiment. Um, and I got some publicity in the, um, uh, in the Sunday People. And in it, I said, you know, the youngest is S. Lewis, but we don't actually know who he is. And who should read it but son of S. Lewis, um, Colin Lewis, who, who wrote to me saying, that's my father. Here's all the proof you need. Um, and, uh, uh, so I've, I've now got to update his story. Um, well, actually flesh it out now. We know which company he served with, in fact, with the Machine Gun Corps on the Somme, probably outside Delville Woods. So that's going to go in. But I'm also working a lot on the stats as well. I always said 250,000 lads enlisted underage in the Great War. I absolutely stick by it, uh, for, um, but, but with all this sort of thing, it's, it takes so much work, so much statistical work to, to, get, to, to get the proof. And of course, you're honing it all the time. So I'm just going to hone it that little bit more, show why I think it's the number it was. Um, so that will that, uh, be new when the book goes in, plus some, some additional photographs. And also, I'm going to do a list of the 50 youngest lads serving on the Western Front, uh, or Gallipoli, or Mes uh, Mesopotamia. And I've got... Um, uh, I've got a sort of top 50, all under the age of 15. So they have to be uh, 13 or 14 to make that list. And they're all um, either artillery or infantry. So um, it's, it, it, that'll make for interesting reading. It's just insane, isn't it? Um, it just blows my mind that 13 and 14-year-olds were getting out there. Actually, I was doing research on uh, Frank Lampard's great-granddad, um, and he got booted back. He was 14. He enlisted into one of the rifle regiments, made it down to Winchester, and they just went, bugger off, you're a child. And there's a big line through his attestation papers where he basically they said, get lost. You are clearly... I mean, by that time, he was 15, but they just they saw it as soon as he walked through the door. Um, but it didn't happen every time at all, did it? No, I mean, it, once you get to 15 and 16, you're just dealing with so many thousands. I mean, extraordinary numbers going overseas, especially in 1915. And although they, they weeded them out in 1916, um, particularly after the, the, the opening salvos of the Somme battle, um, what I've discovered, of course, is a lot of them stayed in. And, and, and you know, they became 19s. You know, you know, do they cease being a, an underage soldier? Well, no, they, they don't really, because that's how they originally went out to France as a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old by 1917, 1918, then 19 and 20. But they're still part of the stats because they were out there underage originally. Um, but uh, several thousand were killed in 19... Uh, uh, 17 and 18, um, uh, I mean, over, over 10,000 killed or wounded, certainly, who have overseas um, uh, medal entitlement, you can look at medal entitlement roles, and they're, they're clearly overseas in 1915, when they were aged 15 or 16 or 17. So um, that's going to be part of the statistical evidence that I'm going to bring to the update of, of boys soldiers in, in due course. I can't wait to read it. Um Victoria, I, I still can't believe you're going. I'm still in shock. Um, <laughs> what are you going to miss the most and what are you most proud of? Oh, I'm going to miss travelling, um, particularly in Africa. We've done some amazing trips over the last couple of years, going out and looking at some places where there are some real challenges, you know, sites which uh, were about to be completely encroached, where we've managed to exhume and rebury the, the people 
another site which we've managed to save with the working with the museums of Kenya that's been brilliant and now just are on the point of creating an amazing amenity built around the cemeteries so I shall be really sorry not to see that um, I think when I came in, it was the commissioners were really clear what they wanted. We'd been this fantastic, strong, silent organisation for a hundred years, and they were ready actually to talk about what we do and to in, to take on that third mission. You know, we always had you know looking after the cemeteries and the burials. We had looking after the archives, but actually telling the stories of the people we care for, um, because as the generations pass. They're gone beyond living memory, the vast majority of them. So our mission was to try and come up with new ways of engaging the public with the stories of the war dead. And through the creation of the foundation and through the whole external relations perspective, you know, we've now got historians and archivists and people out there in the social media world telling those stories. So I'm really proud to have been at the beginning of that in the commission. Yeah, it it's definitely shows in the last five years how marked that change is in that it's so open now, especially with the digitising of some of the records as well. Um, and it is very much more open, I would say, definitely as a historian than to approach the Commonwealth War Graves than it was before you started. But best of luck in all you do. Guys, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks very much indeed. Pleasure. Good luck, uh, good luck, Victoria. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you at some point, Richard. You must come and tell me about the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Alina, who do we have tomorrow? Okay, will do. Tomorrow we will be talking about chemical warfare, what the Nazis were up to with former Secret Service officer, historian and journalist Dan Kazila. So make sure you guys tune in because it's going to be a stronger. And remember, people, stay safe. And more importantly, if you can, stay at home. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.